And let's turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Please find Ephesians chapter 4. This is our fifth lesson in this chapter. And we're in a section of the book where Paul is dealing with the principle of the unity of the faith. We're led by one spirit. We serve one and only one Lord. And no matter where we go throughout this world, you'll always find that believers in Christ are unified with the very same doctrine of salvation. We've had lots of opportunities, of course, to have missionaries come and preach to us. And always when they get up to tell us about their work and the difficulties of their ministry, the story is exactly the same. And their message is that we have a great God who's able to save everyone who comes to him. And we find that no matter where we send our missionaries and no matter what missionaries that we support, when they believe the Bible, we know that they're teaching something, uh, or the same thing, I should say, that we teach right here, that people are saved in only one way, and that is through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, that's the theme, really, that I want to talk about tonight. We have one Lord and only one Lord, and His saving work is the same in all of us. All of us get saved exactly the same way. Now, the sermon tonight concerns just one verse of Scripture. This is verse number 5, but we're going to go back and read, starting in verse number 4, and we're going to read verses 4 through 6, because this verse is actually a part of a trilogy of verses that speak about the Trinity of God and salvation. So let's stand, if you would, please. We're going to read these three verses. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse number 4. Paul writes, There is one body... And one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as we come to you tonight, we rejoice in the opportunity that we have to speak your word. We thank you, Lord, for such great truths that are here in the book of Ephesians. And I just pray, Lord, you might help us to understand them better. And tonight, Lord, I just pray that you might focus our attention all on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We serve one and only one Lord, and we thank you for sending him into the world to save us from our sins. Just bless in the message tonight. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In last week's lesson, you may remember that I remarked about the strange construction that we find in these three verses. This is really a treatise that Paul gives us on the Trinity, and as he does, he takes a different approach as he mentions the three persons of the Godhead. Now, most of the time when you're reading the Scriptures, you always find, uh, in speaking of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, for instance, when Jesus gave us the baptismal formula, uh, formula in the book of Matthew, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But as we read these verses here in Ephesians, we see that Paul uses a reverse order. He speaks of the Holy Spirit, then he talks about the Son, and then the Father. And the reason that Paul does that is that he's speaking about the church, and the church could never be unified if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit would not have a, an entity to unify if it had not been for Jesus Christ who came into the world to save us from our sins. And then in turn, Jesus would have never come into the world if the Father hadn't so loved the world that he sent Christ to save us. And so that's why Paul is giving us the reverse order. 
Now, last week I spoke about Paul's statement in verse number four. He said there is one spirit. There is one and only one spirit. And of course, there are many different spirits in the world, and, but there's only one spirit that's actually God, and that is the Holy Spirit. Now, tonight I can make a similar statement as we talk about the one and only one Lord, because there are many lords, but there's only one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the member of the Trinity that most of us are familiar with, the most familiar with, and the one that we identify with the most, because the Bible teaches us that the Son is the one who identifies with us. He chose to identify with us, and so he had a personal connection uh, with us as humans. And God sent Jesus into the world to have this personal interaction, and then the Holy Spirit was sent specifically to magnify Jesus Christ. And this is very clear from reading the Scriptures that it is the purpose and the work of the Holy Spirit to exalt and magnify and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And so we could say if that's the Holy Spirit's job to do that, then certainly we ought to do no less. And it's our job and we should be thinking about our job of lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in consideration of that, I want you to notice first of all tonight that there is no other name but the name of Jesus. There's one songwriter who wrote, Jesus, oh, how sweet the name. Jesus, every day the same. Jesus, let all earth proclaim his worthy praise forever. And, of course, I would tell you that there is no name as sweet as the name of Jesus. Our hymn books are filled with songs that are written about Jesus, and there are many of them that concentrate just simply on his name. They concentrate just on the name of Jesus and how wonderful that his name is. And I, I don't know about you, but many times I can just think about the name of Jesus or, or be singing a song that mentions the name of Jesus and just thoughts of him uh, just bring tears to your eyes. And why is that? Because there is no other person like Jesus. There is nobody who loves me like Jesus. There is nobody who has a relationship with me like Jesus. There's nobody who is faithful to me as Jesus is faithful. And then, of course, there's no one who can be our Savior and our God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. No person could do that. Now, this evening, we could spend all of our time talking about all the fascinating ways that uh, Jesus is more and so much more than we could ever explain. There are millions of sermons that have been preached about Jesus. There have been millions of, of uh, uh, commentaries that have been written, books that have been written, thousands upon thousands of songs that have been written and sung about Jesus. And in all this time of history, 2,000 years since Jesus has come, there's none of us and no person who's ever been able to get to the depths of the meaning of the name of Jesus. So he's the one and only and one of a kind. Well, tonight I only have about 35 minutes or so to preach this message. And uh, so I'm only going to be able to concentrate on just a small segment of the, of the message tonight about Jesus or all that we could say about Jesus. But he is unique and one of a kind. So let's make that the first point as we talk about the name of Jesus. Jesus is unique. The work of Jesus is unique. The personality of Jesus is unique. His relationship to us is unique. Jesus is unique in how he came into the world. Uh, Jesus is unique in the way that he was born and in all the work that he can, came to do. And men cannot, just simply cannot fathom what it means for this, this God, the great God of the universe, the God of glory, Christ the God of glory, how did he could ever come down to be Christ in a man. 
How, can, how could he be a Christ that could inhabit a mortal body? How could God do that? And for that to happen, that is just simply unthinkable for us. It is an impossible thing to happen. At Christmas time, we have one special day of the year to just contemplate how that, that, that Christ did that. And it's impossible in our way of thinking that the immortal, immense God could pack himself or come into a, a microscopic sperm and impregnate a mortal woman. I mean, that, that's totally impossible for that to happen. I, I, I think back whenever I look at this subject to a, to a quote that my dad used to like to use all the time. And this came from a seminary professor that he had. And, and he said, God immensity packed himself into the minute cell of a Galilean virgin. And that was impossible to do. And yet, the impossible is absolutely necessary for us to understand who God is. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So God has spoken to us through Jesus. And the only way that God could reveal himself to us was through Jesus. The apostle John wrote in John chapter 1, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I think that we could say without doubt that you'll never meet another person like Jesus. You'll never meet anybody like him. He's unique, one of a kind. You'll never meet a person who's perfect in every detail. You'll never meet somebody who never sinned. And not only did Jesus, uh, was it that he could not sin, but Jesus would not sin. And we think about the obedience of Jesus to the, to the laws of God. Jesus didn't obey God's laws in a passive way. He was active in his obedience. He didn't just think about the laws of God or acknowledge them. He actually lived to the fulfillment of the law. So there's a lot that I could say about how unique Jesus is. But let's move on and let's talk about secondly and say that about Jesus and say that he is undivided. And I suppose that that's a function of his uniqueness but because Jesus is the God-man. And you can't separate his divinity from his humanity. And his nature, the nature of Jesus was so different than anything that we've seen before that we can't really understand what his nature is like. Now, the Bible teaches us that Jesus had two natures in one body. And because uh, this nature of Christ and, and, and the way that he inhabited the body of a man, it, it's, it's so beyond our thinking and our understanding that there have been many errors that have been taught concerning it. People don't understand it, and so they try to explain it in different ways that, that really aren't biblical ways. Some have said that the two natures in Christ were fused so that there is no distinction in them. And so these two natures actually became a third nature, and unlike the other two natures at all. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Some have gone to the extreme of saying that Jesus didn't have two natures, but he was actually two persons in one body. But the Bible doesn't teach that either. The Bible teaches us that the natures of Christ, the human nature and the divine nature, did not operate independently of one another. So that when you look at Christ, you can't think of him this way, that, well, here is his God side and here is his man side. 
That's not the way it was with Jesus. He was as much God as he was man, and as much man as he was God. And when we say things like, Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, we don't mean that Jesus just understands us as a man would understand us. He is able to sympathize with, uh, with us as God. And that's a very important point for people to understand because Jesus didn't have supernatural abilities that enable him not to sin in the same way that we wouldn't sin or or that he wouldn't go into temptation because of some supernatural ability that he had. He never used it that way because he had a perfect human nature as well. And so we need to understand that, that in that human nature and in his godly nature, he's able to succor us in all ways. And that never could be done if Jesus had some kind of supernatural ability that kept him from sinning that we don't have. Then thirdly, we could say this about Jesus, is that Jesus unlocks. What do I mean, Jesus unlocks? Well, I mean that Jesus is the only one who can unlock the gates of heaven. Jesus has no assistance when it comes to salvation. And that's a a statement that we need to remember only Jesus brings salvation, and, and he needs no assistance from anyone else. Now, the proper, or I should say, the, the popular teaching of Christianity today is that salvation is a synergistic effort. In other words, salvation is where God does his part, but then you have a part to perform in this, and your part is your personal faith. And personal faith is your contribution to your salvation. But I would say, I would say that Jesus doesn't need any assistance. Even your faith has been secured by God. I want to remind you what our statement of faith says. It says, Regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind, that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. So that statement does not tell us that regeneration is the result of your repentance and faith. God regenerates and then he graciously gives us our repentance and faith. And so that means that it leaves out any effort on man's part. Even our faith is a gift of God. And so folks, heaven is shut up. Heaven is locked Heaven is impenetrable unless you come by Jesus Christ. He's the one that holds the key. Nobody will ever reach heaven unless they go through Christ. His name is the only name by which we can be saved. And that's why Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So there's one and only one Lord. There's only one Master. Jesus said we can't serve two masters because if we try, we'll love one and hate the other. We only serve one. There's one Lord and one Lord to love supremely above all others. Now, I want you to notice the second statement of our text verse because not only does it say there is one Lord, but then it says there is one faith. And so our second point is that there's no other way but the way of the gospel. Now, this statement that there is one faith follows naturally the statement that there is one Lord, and that's because Christ is Christianity, and Christ is our faith. Faith as an entity does not save anyone. Faith by itself doesn't save anyone. It's faith in the object that saves, and the object, of course, is Jesus, the one Lord. And so Paul says there is one faith. Now, when you read commentary on this verse... There are lots of uh, opinions about what Paul meant when he said that there was one faith. 
What, what kind of faith is Paul talking about? I mean, is he talking about personal faith? Well, certainly personal faith is a, is a very important part of salvation. It's a great characteristic of salvation. And we know that no one is saved unless they exercise personal faith. But personal faith or faith in that way is a subjective thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that when you want to prove something, you never use a subjective argument. And why don't you? Well, because subjective arguments are personal. Uh, Subjective arguments are things that take place in your own mind. And so in order to prove the point here, there has to be an obvious objective argument here. So one objective argument is that faith in this verse refers to the whole body of Christian doctrine. And when we studied the book of Jude, Jude used the word in that way. In Jude chapter, in Jude the third verse, I should say, he said, Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And what Jude is speaking of there, of there is not to contend for your personal faith, although that's uh, certainly a a desirable thing for all of us to do, but he's not talking about personal faith. He's talking about the whole body of faith that was taught by Jesus and the apostles. And he says there's one body of truth. There aren't many bodies of truth. And so when someone errs about what's written in the Scripture, what all of us should do is to stand up and combat that heresy. We're to stand up for this faith. But here we find that Paul is not talking about faith in that sense. He's not talking about the whole body of Christian doctrine. I believe that what Paul is talking about when he says one faith, that he's speaking about the gospel. There is only one true way of salvation, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now I want you to take your Bible, if you would, and just turn back one book to the book of Galatians. And if you read the book of Galatians, you'll find that the entire book is devoted to the one and only gospel. I mean, there were many people that were arguing and and trying to present other gospels in Paul's day, just as people try to do the same today. And so Paul gave a very stern warning about, about going against what God has revealed to us as the one gospel. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. It was interesting to me as I was reading one of my study Bibles that right here before verse number 6, there's a subheading that says one or only one gospel. There's one gospel. And Paul denied that anything should be added to the one gospel. Now, folks, sadly, most of uh, the Christian denominations today have added to the one gospel. Roman Catholicism adds seven sacraments. And if you read the Roman Catholic Catechism, you'll find that it's none too vague at all that says that anyone who believes that they're justified by their faith only should be accursed. 
Many denominations like the Lutherans, the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, the Church of Christ, add baptism to the one gospel. And when you add anything to the one gospel, you no longer have the gospel. Some of the charismatics add a second work of grace. And they will tell you that unless you evidence your faith by speaking in tongues, then you can't be saved. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one and only one gospel. And Paul defined it for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's it. That is the purest statement of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, he was put into a tomb, and then on the third day he rose again. And if you add anything to that, you no longer have the one gospel. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, who did these things for us, and he did them for us personally. And Romans chapters. Uh, 1 through 4, Paul's argument is about justification by faith in Christ alone. And the argument of Romans chapter 10, if you've read that, is also faith in the one gospel of Christ. And Paul writes there in Romans chapter 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with, one, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Listen. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you'll notice in Paul's statement, there is no room for sacraments. There is no room for baptism. There is no room for anything but justifying faith. Now, let me just tell you what transpires when you believe the gospel and when you trust in the one and only Lord. First of all, what happens is that God justifies by transferring our sins to Christ. Now, the Bible teaches us that all of our sins have been placed upon Jesus. Jesus, of course, was not a sinner. He had no sin of his own. And because we are sinners, there's none of us that can stand in God's courtroom and expect that we'll receive any other verdict than a verdict of guilty. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you might argue that statement if you want, and many people do. They don't believe that they're sinners. But nobody has any ground to stand on because the Bible is very adamant about this. You are a sinner. But the Bible also tells us that God is a just and a holy God. And God says, I will punish you for your sins. And there's only one way that sin can be forgiven, and that's for it to be transferred to somebody who's totally guiltless himself. And that's what God does for the person who puts his faith in Christ. In Romans chapter 3, Paul said, "...being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus." 
So what God has done is he has allowed our sins to be transferred to Jesus, the one and only Lord. And sins can be transferred only to Jesus because there's nobody else that can stand in our place before God. The scripture says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now folks, I love Christmas time. I love to read about this story of Mary and Joseph. But I want to tell you, according to the scriptures, Mary is not a way to come to God. Mary never bore anybody's sins, and Mary never had the ability to intercede for anybody. The Bible says there is one Lord. Now, next what happens is that God justifies by transferring Christ's righteousness to us. Now, remember, uh, I said that we've, we've sinned. The Bible says that there's nothing that's good in us. We have nothing at all that's meritorious that we can offer God. I mean, we can't even bring faith to God because we don't have any faith. And that's why salvation has to be all of grace. God has to provide everything for us. And so God exercises his grace because he sees nothing at all in us. Now, some argue, well, he sees that we will have faith. And so therefore, based upon our foreseen faith, then God elects us to salvation. Well, you might as well that you believe that you saved yourself if you say that, because it's exactly the same thing. If God saw any reason in you to save you, then you saved yourself. But the Bible teaches that we're vile, filthy, undeserving sinners. But then our sins are transferred to Christ. And as our sins are transferred to Christ, Christ transfer, or God transfers Christ's active obedience to us. Remember I said just a moment ago that Christ's obedience to the law was not passive. It was active obedience. And so what Christ did as he came to this world and lived a perfect life and kept all the laws of God, he earned righteousness that could be transferred to us. Now, Christ himself is, of course, pure righteousness. The Bible says he's the righteousness of God. But we think about that being Christ's intrinsic righteousness. And what belongs to God in that sense, the intrinsic righteousness of Christ, can't be transferred to us. That's one of those incommunicable attributes of God. But earned righteousness is a totally different thing. And this is what Christ came to do. He earned righteousness that could be transferred to us. And so then, based upon what what Christ has done for us and not what we can do for ourselves, we have salvation. Folks, right here is the whole crux of what salvation is all about. This is why we reject any kind of a system that says that our good works will help save us Our good works will help us in any way get to heaven or that there is, in fact, any good work that a person could do. It can't be done outside of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness that saves us and not our righteousness. It will never do us any good to think that we're righteous. So all the sacraments a person can can keep, all the times that he's baptized, all the confessions he goes to, all the times that he prays to Mary, all the times he says the rosary, does none whatsoever towards his salvation. Nothing at all. Because it's not our righteousness and the works we do that save. It's all in Jesus Christ. Now, that's the gospel. That's the essence of the gospel of Christ. One faith. And that's the only gospel that brings glory to God, glory to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Any other gospel brings glory to man. And God will not stand to have his glory given to man. Now, I need to finish then with a third statement. Verse number 5. In verse number 5, where he says, There is one 
baptism. And here we say there is no other uniform but the uniform of the Savior. Now here's where conservative, Bible-believing Baptists depart from most Christian denominations. What is the one baptism that he speaks of? Well, almost invariably, people will say that this means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit into this mystical, mystical body of the church. Well, first of all, there is no mystical body of the church. I mean, the church is local and visible. It's not universal and invisible. If you study this, none of the old writers ever believed that this was called this was a Holy Spirit baptism that Paul referred to. Last week, I think we debunked the myth that there's any such thing as, as a Holy Spirit baptism today at all. So it's really a relatively new phenomenon that people will refer to uh, Ephesians 4 verse 5 and one baptism as being the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says there is one baptism. In the Bible, there are many different baptisms. On the day of Pentecost, there was a baptism with the Holy Spirit. As we said, that's no longer available to us today. Jesus talked about a baptism of fire. And what he meant by that was the fellowship of his sufferings. In another place, Paul talked about being the people being baptized unto Moses. And what he meant there was that the people followed Moses through the Red Sea. So there are many different baptisms that are talking, uh, talked about in the Bible. But if I simply say to you tonight the word baptize, or I use the word baptism, what is it that you think about? Well, some people will think about sprinkling little babies. But you shouldn't think about that as being baptism because that was never done even one time in all of the scriptures. So when I use the word baptize, what do we usually think about? Well, we look over here and we think about that. We think about the waters of baptism and then a person going down into the water to be baptized. And whenever you see baptism in the scripture and there is no modifier, there's nothing there that explains what it is. It's always referring to water baptism. So what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 4, 5 is not spirit baptism, but water baptism. Now, how does that figure into the statement? And this best fits what Paul had to say. How does it figure in? Well, Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, I've explained that statement a lot of times, and I hope that you remember this. But this means to put on Christ like a soldier puts on his uniform. Now, when a soldier puts on his uniform, he puts on the uniform of his country. And he doesn't, the next day, put on the uniform of some other country. He's always got one uniform on. And this is what baptism is. It is our uniform that we wear that says that we're identified with Christ. Now, first then, what does the uniform say? It says, or it is, our identification with Christ. Baptism is what says, I am a believer. I identify with Christ. Now, if you are a Christian and you refuse to be identified with Christ... How convincing is your belief? I mean, a person who says, I believe in Christ, but I don't want to be identified with him, would that convince you the person is a Christian? Did you know that in our churches today, and in soul-winning classes, that they don't emphasize at all that we ought to teach people that they need to be baptized? That's something left for later. Don't even mention that. Well, that's not the way the Scriptures do it. My motto is, and you know it very well, don't count them until you baptize them. Because anybody who doesn't want to be identified with Jesus Christ could never convince me that he's really a true believer. Baptism is the uniform. He said, as many as you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
Then secondly, baptism is our confession of Christ. And friends, this thing has really been skewed by most fundamental Baptists today. They will teach you that running up the aisle, shaking the preacher's hand, bowing at these steps, which they call an altar, is the way that you identify with Christ. First of all, I'll say it again, we have no altar in Berean Baptist Church, and that's because the altar was the cross. The altar was done away with when Jesus died on the cross. And so you don't come to somebody's altar. You don't come here to be saved. That's not the purpose. We come to Jesus Christ alone because he's done away with altars. Nobody's altar will save you. Secondly, our confession of Christ is when you say, I have been buried with him. My sins have gone down into the grave, never to be remembered anymore. And I rise to walk in the new life in Jesus Christ. Well, how do we prove that? Well, take your Bible now, turn to Romans chapter 6. And Paul gives us a statement here that will tie all of this together. How baptism fits into the picture of one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1. Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection." knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So what is the connection between water baptism and one Lord? We find it right here in verse number four. It says that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now we go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And what do we say the gospel of Christ is? Paul said, I declare unto you, the gospel. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So do you see how all that fits together? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so when you go down into the waters of baptism, you're saying there is one Lord crucified, there is one Lord buried, and there's one Lord risen again. And you know what it is? It's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Praise the Lord for that. There's only one Lord, and he saves everybody exactly the same way. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's the salvation of the one Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to... Speak your word tonight, and Lord, we could preach nothing better than the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what people most need to hear. In a world where people are depending upon so many different things, upon the things that they do and all the works that they perform, trying to get to heaven and scratching to get there the best that they can, help us to see there is no other way but Christ. He's done it all for us. We need not depend upon ourselves because... Nothing that we could do would ever be good enough to be righteous in the eyes of a holy God. So, Lord, we need the righteousness of Christ transferred to us just as we preach tonight. 
And we know, Lord, from your word that this is done through our faith in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we know salvation is only by grace through faith. Bless in our invitation tonight, Lord, draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.